Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series about people's futures and how they can be reimagined. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. Patrick Stewart, the British actor best known for his role as Captain Jean-Luc Picard in the Star Trek TV series, has a new memoir. It's titled Making It So. Stewart grew up working class in England, made his way to the stage with the Royal Shakespeare Company, and then found fame on television with the starship USS Enterprise. Stewart's first appearance as Picard was in 1987 on The Next Generation, where he starred for seven seasons. He's recently reprised the role in Star Trek Picard, nearly 30 years later. Stewart also starred in several Star Trek films, X-Men movies, multiple Shakespeare productions, and a one-man version of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. During the pandemic, Stewart took to Instagram and provided some comfort by reading sonnets to his followers. We're going to listen to Fresh Air producer Sam Brigger's 2020 interview with Stewart. But first, let's hear a clip from the first season of Star Trek Picard, where years earlier, Picard had resigned his commission at Starfleet and retreated to his family vineyard in France to live out the rest of his years, embittered that the United Federation of Planets had lost its way. But a confused young woman named Dodge appears at his home asking for help, figuring out her identity. It turns out she's an android and perhaps related to Picard's old friend Data, who sacrificed himself to save Jean-Luc. Dodge is killed by unknown assailants who also injure Picard. Here he is recuperating, angry at himself for failing her and shoring himself up for one more adventure. She deserved better from me. I owe it to her to find out who killed her and why. You ask too much of yourself. Oh, sitting here all these years, nursing my offended dignity. Writing books of history people prefer to forget. I never asked anything of myself at all. No, I didn't. I haven't been living. I've been waiting to die. And that's a scene from Star Trek Picard, starring my guest today, Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you, Sam. I'm very happy to be talking to you. I'm happy to talk to you, too. When you were preparing for the new show, did you go back and watch any of those old episodes from The Next Generation? And if so, what were your thoughts about your performance then? I, from the very beginning, once I'd said, okay, I'm on board, there was not a day when I didn't think, okay, this evening, right, I'm going <laughs> to sit down, I'm going to watch um, Encounter at Farpoint, which was our pilot episode of the series. And um, I never did. I ended up never watching a moment of Next Generation because, okay, I would have been reminded of some things that I'd forgotten, but that character was inside me. And, and the longer that we did Next Generation, the more of Patrick Stewart got into Jean-Luc Picard. And so finally I, I felt 
I don't need to do that research. What I need to do now is find out who he has become and, and really explore that and try to make that as authentic as possible, as something that happened to a man whom we remember very vividly from the next generation days. Well, um, I guess it's too late for this to help us research, but I thought we could maybe listen to a moment from The Next Generation, uh, if, if you don't mind. Um, this is a particularly good Picard monologue. Um, this is from an episode called Measure of a Man. And this episode actually connects to your new series, Star Trek Picard. Um, at the scene we're going to play, uh, Picard is defending his friend and officer, Data, in this tribunal, which is trying to decide whether Data actually is Data is an android, and they're trying to decide whether um, he should be considered a living being with with rights, or whether he's a piece of machinery owned by the Federation, um, who want to sort of take him apart, dismantle him, and try to figure out how to make more of them, which I think would be used as workers without any rights. So let's just hear a moment of this. Your Honor, a courtroom is a crucible. In it, we burn away irrelevances until we are left with a pure product, the truth, for all time. Now, sooner or later, this man, or others like him, will succeed in replicating Commander Data. Now, the decision you reach here today will determine how we will regard this creation of our genius. It will reveal the kind of a people we are, what he is destined to be. It will reach far beyond this courtroom and this one android. It could significantly redefine the boundaries of personal liberty and freedom, expanding them for some, savagely curtailing them for others. Are you prepared to condemn him and all who come after him to servitude and slavery? Your Honor, Starfleet was founded to seek out new life. Well, there it sits, waiting. You wanted a chance to make law. Well, here it is. Make it a good one. That's a scene from Star Trek Next Generation. Um, that was my guest, Patrick Stewart, who has a new show, Star Trek Picard. So, Patrick Stewart, uh, listening back to that, you know, what's your reaction to your performance or to the character at that point? Do you have any thoughts? My, you have to believe how extraordinary that was for me to listen to that speech, something which I learned and performed probably, I think it has to be 30 years ago. Um, and I applaud how passionate I was and how, that I was not afraid of letting my feelings show because Picard was a man who, for the most part, kept his feelings very much under control. I'm not saying he was dishonest, but he felt that emotions can blur a situation or a conversation or a dialogue. Um, but there was no sense of that, was there at all, in any of that. And uh, I'm also very impressed with the terrific piece of writing, and I don't know who was responsible for that speech, but um, I've got a feeling that there is one word in what we've just heard that actually didn't belong to one of the writers. I used the word slavery at one point. And that word was given me by Whoopi Goldberg. I remember when she and I, I think it might have been the same episode, The Measure of a Man. I think it 
could have been. When, when Whoopi and I had a scene in the bar of 10 Forward, and, and in a break, um, Whoopi said to me, you know, what, what we're actually talking about here is slavery, and I think it wouldn't be a mistake to introduce that. And so I, I think that was why that word cropped up. And I was so thrilled that Whoopi had proposed it and so proud that, that everyone approved it and it went into the episode. This might be a stupid question, but I'm going to ask it. Um, Jean-Luc Picard is French, so why doesn't he have a French accent? I mean, there in Star Trek, you have a Russian accents, you have, you have Scottish accents, Irish accents. Why does Jean-Luc Picard have a British accent? Somewhere in the Paramount archives, there ought to be a videotape of me speaking Picard's lines with a French accent. <laughs> they did actually want me to do that. So was it rejected? Um, <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know that my French accent... I mean, obviously, I, if they'd wanted it, I would have worked on it and made it as impeccable a French accent as I could. But um, I think I know what I did. You know, the famous introduction, Space, the Final Frontier. Um, I did that. You know, Space, the Final Frontier. These are the voyage of the Starship Enterprise. Well, that's how I did it. And... Um, <laughs> And it never came up again. <laughs> well, what did come up was, um, you know, the world, the, our Earth is now assembled under the Federation of Planets and, and Starfleet. Um, uh, it, there's no reason why he shouldn't be a Frenchman who is a brilliant French speaker, but also speaks English brilliantly with an English accent. So, so they agreed to that, but they also... We identified certain technical terms that would be given American pronunciations, and I was very, very happy to do that. I do remember quite a long conversation about how we should pronounce the name of the, the character played by Brent Spiner. Um, should it be data or data? And I was the one that campaigned for data, and I'm very happy to say it was what won the argument. I wanted to talk a little bit about your early years. You were born and raised in Yorkshire. Um, and for the first five years of your life, you, you didn't know your father. He was serving in the war in a parachute regiment. And he was actually also one of the last men rescued at Dunkirk. Um, we'll talk about this. It sounds like he suffered from what was not known then as PTSD, but, but certainly it sounds like he had that. Um, but I was wondering... Did it scare you when he returned from home? I mean, here was this person that you didn't know who is now living in your house. Yes, it did. I, I was very intimidated. Um, my mother was a loving, charming, sweet, adorable person. And um, he was an interesting and exciting and colorful person. And, of course, he'd had this extraordinary career which had left him as a superstar in the non-commissioned officer sense. Um, but also there were other aspects to it, which I only discovered the details of to my profound regret a few years ago. And um, I've talked to an authority on PTSD, told him about my father's 
behavior and his weekend alcoholism and, and his mood swings and, and the violence towards my mother. All of this I've talked about in the past. And he said, these are classic symptoms. There is no doubt your father was severely affected and needed medical help, which of course he never got. And it made me sad because I've given my father a bad press over the years that I couldn't speak to him now and ask him about these feelings and what it was and what he'd experienced. Um, I, I will never know. Um, your brothers are, are older than you. And in fact, one of them, I think, was also serving during the war. Did they have a different perspective on your father since they had known him before he had gone to the war? Um, yes, very much so. Uh, my oldest brother, who was 17 years older than me and was indeed in the Royal Air Force, um, he disliked our father intensely. He had experienced him before Dad went to war in 1939. And I think that had been a bad time for him. So th their, you know, shell shock or PTSD couldn't be blamed for that. And um, my eldest brother never, ever lived at home again. He, he lived with my mother's sister just across the road. But he and my father had a very, very difficult relationship if there was enough there to call it a relationship. My other brother, Trevor, who is five years older than me, he and I had very similar experiences, but he was a, a calmer and quieter and, and more patient uh, teenager than I proved to be. And, and so I think he was able to tolerate this difficult situation better than I could. I, I really had problems with it. It was not a great time. Um, but as luck would have it, I fell under the influence of some wonderful people, um, most particularly my teachers. And, and then when I was 11 years old, um, a man called Cecil Dormant, who was my English teacher and first person to put a copy of Shakespeare into my hand and insist that I read it aloud. And interestingly enough, it was the trial scene from The Merchant of Venice and he had me playing Shylock. Um, yeah, and did you, did you connect to that right away? Did you, did you feel an affinity to Shakespeare and to even no, acting at that point? I didn't know what the hell I was saying. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, was, I couldn't even properly read the words. I was not at an academic school, not remotely. In those days, they were called secondary modern schools. And yet, even though I couldn't understand the words or really what was going on, there was something about the sound of those words when I spoke them, the feeling of them in my mouth, the even then, I think, intuitively, a rhythmic aspect to it as well touched me. And um, I was hooked for life. When did you start feeling a connection to acting itself? I mean, it sounded like it was pretty young. It was about the time that Cesc Dorman put the copy of Merchant of Venice into my hand. Um, he cast me in a play with adults. Um, a lot of the staff of the school I went to 
thanks to the enthusiasm of the headmaster, loved amateur acting. And most of the company, not all of them, but most of them were teachers in my school. And um, we did a play called The Happiest Days of Your Life, which was about two schools merging. It's a brilliant comedy. It was made into a film. And there was a character called Hopcroft Minor, who was a a 12-year-old public school boy, and they cast me as that. There was also a young girl in it too. Um, But first of all, I loved working with adults, especially the adults who, who were my teachers. And the most important thing that happened to me was that the first time I walked onto that stage to play my role, I felt safer. And I mean literally, physically, emotionally safer than I had ever felt in my life. And I think it must have been that that drew me back to acting. And then I joined other amateur groups. At that time, there was no consideration of becoming a professional. Um, I just loved the experience of being someone else, not being Patrick Stewart, and um, exploring what my life might be like if I were someone else. So you said you were safer and you liked not having to be Patrick Stewart. So, So was acting an escape from your home, from your family life then? Yep. All of that. And, uh, and also not having to feel that I was a failure. You know, I'd had friends who had taken the 11 plus and gone to grammar school. You know, when, friends I'd had when I was 8, 9, 10. And I was cut off from them because I, I, I wasn't scholarly, I wasn't academic. Um, but finding that people wanted to have me in their plays and productions and so forth. And, and we did quite a lot of acting in the school. Where I grew up, you were not thought weird if you were a performer, not remotely. On the other hand, it was actually applauded and loved. So to sing, to play an instrument, to act a scene, to recite a poem, these things were respected. And my memory of Christmas at home is of, oh, almost every member of my family performing something. So that wasn't strange, uh, being an actor. I grew up in a town called Murfield, which had a population of 9,000 people. And in that town, there were 11 fully functioning amateur dramatic groups. So was there a moment that you remember where you were acting and and you thought that you perhaps had some skill and that maybe you could do this as a career? Uh, No, there wasn't. Even though um, for a year I worked on a local newspaper and that didn't work out for... uh, Yeah, I think we should tell tell people why. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll just summarize. But you were fifteen, and you were working in a local paper, and you were spending too much of your time in amateur productions. And in fact, you were uh, committing the journalistic sin of making up things in your reports. So yes, yes, that's true. Sometimes I would just get someone to cover for me if I had a rehearsal and there was a council meeting or something I had to attend, or I would have a contact there and I would phone him afterwards and he would give me all the stuff, or 
the final um, uh, alternative was that I just made it up. And I didn't get really found out until one night uh, when I was supposed to be at a council meeting, a huge fire broke out. In, uh, where I lived, it was heavy wool in the industry. It was weaving, big mills, weaving mills. And the editor and the sub-editor called each other and they said, we've got to get somebody out there. This is a huge blaze. And the sub-editor said, no, no, no. Patrick's next door in the council meeting. He'll be right there. <laughs> Found out. And the next, the next morning I was called in to the editor's office and uh, given an ultimatum. Well, I guess we know which way you went. <laughs> and I chose acting over, uh, over journalism. Patrick Stewart, recorded in 2020. More of our interview after a break. Also, Ken Tucker reviews a new box set of Joni Mitchell demos, alternate takes and concert performances from 1972 to 75. And Justin Chang reviews Anatomy of a Fall, a murder mystery and courtroom drama that won the top prize at Cannes. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Seth Kelly, producer at Fresh Air. And this is Molly C.V. Nesper, digital producer at Fresh Air. We co-write the weekly Fresh Air newsletter. It's recaps of the week, staff recommendations gems from the archive, and a glimpse at who's coming on the show soon, all in one place. It's also a fun peek behind the scenes. What goes into the producing and editing of the interviews, and a chance to meet the people who make Fresh Air. You can subscribe by going to whyy.org slash fresh air. You'll hear from us soon. Now, back to the show. Let's get back to our 2020 interview with actor Patrick Stewart. He stars in Star Trek Picard. Season 3 is currently streaming on Paramount+. Plus. And Stewart also has a new memoir. He spoke with Fresh Air producer Sam Brigger. Um, in 1966, you joined the Royal Shakespeare Company. Um, so there was a, it sounds like there was like a 10-year period where you were paying your dues, probably in amateur and semi-professional roles, right? Yes, yes. Um, and you've said you've, you grew up working class. And, you know, class has so much influence in England. Uh, is it as influential in the theater? Like, were you looked down upon at the Royal Shakespeare Company from coming from the working class? Not at all, because the breakthrough 
had already occurred. Actors like Albert Finney and Tom Courtney were already leading star actors, and they came from working-class backgrounds. I mean, both of them had slight accents, you know, um, and both of them were brilliant. What I did feel, to a certain extent, was that it was hard for me to play very sophisticated upper-class or upper-middle-class people because I used to find the accent kind of difficult. I spoke with a very, very broad accent. In fact, it wasn't just an accent. I spoke in dialect. So when my acting teacher, who I luckily met Ruth Widow in when I was 13, when she said to me, Patrick, if you really want to, you know, play everything on stage, you're going to have to lose that accent. Not all the time, but you're going to have to be able to lose it. And you must, you must work on what was called RP, received pronunciation, which is how people on the BBC, newsreaders on the BBC spoke like that. That no longer applies. I think, if anything, the BBC now looks for people who have accents. But I use different words. I mean, I'll, I will give you a very quick instance. Um, if I go to a friend's house, if I went to a friend's house to ask him if he was coming out to play, I would say, Atalekina, Atalekina, Atta, art thou, Lakin, which is at least a, a, a 16th century word for playing, art, out. Are you coming out to play? So um, it was quite a long journey for me to get away from that. And for a couple of years, my life was split. Um, weekends when I worked with dear Ruth Winnowin, my acting teacher, who had a beautiful accent and a beautiful voice, I would attempt to speak RP. And then Monday to Friday when I was at school, I, I spoke with a broad Yorkshire accent. And sometimes I would get them mixed up and oh, did that get me in trouble <laughs> in with trouble my there. friends? Yeah. I'd like to play a clip of you as Macbeth in a uh, 2010 BBC adaptation of the play. And um, in this scene, Macbeth has just found out that his wife has died. And you give this very famous soliloquy known as tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. So I'd just like to hear that. Tomorrow. Tomorrow, and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays of lighted fools away to dusty death.
That's my guest, Patrick Stewart, playing Macbeth in a 2010 BBC adaptation of the play. So I just wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what choices you made in in doing that soliloquy. Uh, you know, that has made me a little emotional. Um, I, I love that role. Um, I played it for exactly a year, and I did no other work for those 365 days, only Macbeth. And it did in time, you know, doing a role like that eight times a week and attempting to live the role, everything that happens in it, it's it, because it is a horrendous story. It, it affected me very badly when I was on Broadway. I don't think it showed in my performance. I, I used to go home and get drunk every night and then sleep, sleep in the morning and then get ready. The best part of the day for me was six o'clock when I thought two hours from now, I'm going to be walking on stage playing this great role because it is a fantastic role. But uh, how did I make an interpretation of it? Well, one day before we'd started rehearsing, I was somewhere in London on the street and who should I encounter? But somebody who at the time I didn't know that well, uh, Sir Ian McKellen. And he said to me, hey, is it true that what I've heard that you're going to be playing Macbeth? Now, Ian had done a production of Macbeth with Judy Dench, with Dame Judy Dench, which had been one of the most remarkable Shakespearean performances I had ever seen. And I said, well, yes, it is. And he said, can I just give you one little word of advice? And I said, oh, please, as much as you like. He said that, you know, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. The most important word is and. <gasps> and God bless him. I got it instantly. It's not tomorrow and tomorrow, but tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And it was such a typical Ian McKellen interpretation of a line. And, you know, that spread all the way through the performance for me. Bless him. Um, you've said that when you first started when you first started acting, your performances were cautious and that you didn't want to expose yourself too much. What did you what do you mean by that? Oh yes, and I was told about it by my the director of my acting school. I went to the Bristol Ulvik Theatre School. And towards the end of my two years there, um, he called me into his office and gave me a pretty tough talking to. But the last thing he said to me was, Patrick, you will never achieve success by insuring against failure. And I thought I knew what he meant, but I didn't, not for years and years and years. And um, I learned that you have to take risks. You have to be brave. You have to step into the unknown. You have to jump off the edge of the cliff. All of those things are required of actors. Once I finally understood that, I knew what direction I had to go in. Well, I, one, one more question. I mean, you, in your past, you've had uh, the opportunity to play older men like you've played King Lear and as Ebenezer Scrooge, uh, Prospero. Um, looking back at those performances as a, when you were a younger man, but portraying an older man, what do you think you got right or didn't get right? Um, 
Or, or what are um, you surprised about now being a 79-year-old that you wouldn't have been able to incorporate into your roles back then? Well, it, it's what the one thing I've already talked about. I'm braver than I was when I was 35. I am not averse to risk-taking, and I, I don't judge myself. I used to do that so much. Ah, Patrick, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. You, you could have done that differently. You could have done it better. That gets in the way of spontaneity and, and real feeling coming into something. So um, I'm, I'm braver now than I was when I was much younger. Patrick Stewart, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed speaking with you. I've been really enjoying seeing you on television, and uh, it's just been a a real delight to speak with you. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I've enjoyed it, Sam, very much indeed. Patrick Stewart, recorded in 2020. His new memoir is titled Making It So. Star Trek Picard, season three is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Coming up. Ken Tucker reviews Volume 3 of the Joni Mitchell Archive series, covering the years 1972 to 1975. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teledochealth.com slash what's your why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C health slash what's your why. Support for NPR and the following message come from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. International travel can be life-changing, but an unexpected emergency can make your trip memorable for all the wrong reasons. Allianz Travel Insurance provides benefits for medical emergencies, trip cancellations, travel delays, and more. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. This message comes from Schwab. It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in with Schwab Investing Themes, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Choose from over 40 customizable themes. More at schwab.com. At 79, Joni Mitchell has made a surprising return to public performances after a series of health problems. These strong reappearances over the past year have increased interest in her long career, and a new box set surveys a crucial part of it. Titled Joni Mitchell Archives Volume 3, The Asylum Years, 1972-1975, to it contains five discs of studio recordings, demos, and concert performances made during the height of Mitchell's commercial success. Rock critic Ken Tucker says, The collection represents both a summation of Mitchell's pop achievement and a harbinger of her later, more experimental work. Cold blue steel out of money One eye for the beat police Sweet fire calling, you can't deny me You know what you need By 1972, Joni Mitchell had recorded one masterpiece, the album Blue, one of the great works of romanticism in any form, and was a key figure in the singer-songwriter boom, along with such friends as James Taylor and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. But her audience wasn't as large as those of her male counterparts. Restless and ambitious, Mitchell left Reprise Records for Asylum Records, 
then a new Los Angeles haven for singer-songwriters, co-founded by David Geffen. In 72, she released For the Roses, filled with gorgeous ballads of heartache, and, at the prodding of Geffen, her first and only attempt to write a hit single. That would be You Turn Me On, I'm a Radio, heard on this new collection in a performance she gave at Carnegie Hall that same year. If you're driving into town with a dark cloud above you, dialing the number who's bound to love you. Oh, honey, you turn me on. I'm a radio. I'm a country station. I'm a little bit corny. I'm a wildwood flower waving for you. Broadcasting tower waving for you. I'm sending out this signal here I hope you can pick it up loud and clear I know you don't like Well, that song got Geffen off her back and Mitchell was on a songwriting roll. She followed for the Roses with Court and Spark in 1974. It went to number two on the charts and is as pure a pop album as any she created. More importantly, it was a perfect conjoining of alluring melodies with the infinite nuances of her voice. As a lyricist, Mitchell organizes images and metered verse that showcase her phrasing and shape her daringly wayward song structures. That's Help Me, in a live version from a Los Angeles show in 74. This third volume of the Mitchell Archive series has five discs of rough demos, alternate takes, and concert performances. It includes one exceptional song that was left off of For the Roses, a piano ballad called Like Veils, Said Lorraine. It's veils you tear off one by one, said Lorraine. No, it's walls we put up, said that tired voice again. The chisel gets blunt and the sword gets profane. Nobody's blame, but you bind up the stone chips in the gauze that you've slain. In an interview with Cameron Crowe included in this package, Mitchell says that that lovely piece of music has the most banal origin. It's an account of a conversation she had with her real estate agent, who was indeed named Lorraine. By the time we get to the last third of this collection, Mitchell has introduced the jazz fusion accompaniment of the L.A. Express, a band led by the slick saxophonist Tom Scott that backed her both in the studio and here in a 1974 Dorothy Chandler Pavilion concert. I've been sitting up waiting for my sugar to show I've been listening to the sirens and the radio City be three hours ago I've been waiting for his car on the 
hissing of summer lawns in 1975 signaled Mitchell's decisive break with singer-songwriter pop. She started employing jazz players to execute more open, discursive forms. Down in the cellar in the zone, I went looking for some sweet inspiration. Oh well, just another hard time band with Negro affectations. I was a hopeful in rooms like this when I was working cheap. It's an old romance, the boho dance. It hasn't gone to sleep. When I interviewed Mitchell in 1995, she said that this was the period when she realized that, quote, Americans like simplistic emotions in music. They like their happiness major and their tragedy minor, and about as complicated a chord as they can take is a seventh. At the time, that struck me as condescending, but I wasn't working on Mitchell's wavelength. She was done being ingratiating. She wanted an audience that would accept her artistic challenges. I still think that after this, her turn away from pop accessibility resulted in much more uneven albums. But I respect that stubborn adventurousness even as I treasure the hits collected on this unguarded, generous collection. Ken Tucker reviewed Joni Mitchell's archives, Volume 3, The Asylum Years, 1972-75. to Coming up, Justin Chang reviews the film Anatomy of a Fall, which won the top prize at Cannes. This is Fresh Air. The top support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. According to Calendar.com, the average person schedules just 4.5 hours per year on finances. Mass Mutual gets it. Life is busy. If you can't find time to plan your financial future, find someone who can. Like a Mass Mutual financial professional. For the last 170 years, they've helped people plan for retirement, college tuition, and any other short or long-term financial goals. Learn more at MassMutual.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives, empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com slash NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. Prize at this year's Cannes Film Festival went to the French film Anatomy of a Fall, directed and co-written by Justine Trier. The movie, which opens in theaters this week, is a murder mystery and courtroom drama starring German actor Sandra Huller as a writer accused of killing her husband. Our film critic Justin Chang has this review. One reason Sandra Huller is one of the best actors working today is that unlike many performers, she doesn't seem to care if you like her characters or not. 
Whether she's playing a tightly wound corporate climber in the brilliant comedy Tony Erdmann, or a Nazi commandant's wife in the upcoming drama The Zone of Interest, you never once catch her pleading for the audience's sympathy. That fearlessness is partly what makes her so compelling to watch in Anatomy of a Fall, the absorbingly intricate psychological thriller that won the Palme d'Or at Cannes this year. Huller plays a successful German-born writer, also named Sandra, who finds herself on trial for her husband's murder. The movie begins at a chalet in the French Alps, where Sandra and her French husband, Samuel, live with their 11-year-old son, Daniel. Things are tense between Sandra and Samuel, as we can sense from the way he blasts his music while she's being interviewed by a journalist. The interview gets cut short, and the journalist leaves. Sometime later, Samuel is found dead outside in the snow, bleeding heavily from a head wound. Did he fall or jump from one of the chalet's upper stories? Or was he pushed? The director Justine Trier, who wrote the script with Arthur Harari, never reveals the answer. The story is full of intriguing forensic details. Samuel's fatal fall is diagrammed from every possible angle, and every spatter of blood is analyzed obsessively. But ultimately, Trier is less interested in explaining who done it, or if anyone done it, than in conducting an autopsy on Sandra and Samuel's marriage. When Sandra is tried for Samuel's murder, the history of their troubled relationship comes to light. We learn that Samuel never forgave himself for his role in the accident years ago that left Danielle severely visually impaired. That took an obvious toll on the couple. At one point, Samuel's therapist takes the stand and testifies that Samuel had described his wife as cold and controlling. But Sandra pushes back against this assessment, addressing the court in English, since she isn't fluent enough in French. I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm sorry. But, I don't know, you, you, you come here, okay, with your, maybe your opinion, and you tell me who Samuel was and what we were going through. But what you say is just, uh, it is just a little part of the whole situation, you know. I mean, sometimes, sometimes a couple is kind of a chaos, and... Everybody is lost, no? And sometimes we fight together and sometimes we fight alone and sometimes we, we fight against each other. That happens. And I think it's possible that Samuel needed to see things the way you described them, but if, if I'd been seeing a therapist, he could stand here too and say very ugly things about Samuel, but would those things be true? I don't know how accurate Anatomy of a Fall is in its portrayal of the French legal system. But here, as in last year's excellent courtroom drama Saint-Omer, it appears to be an extremely different system from ours, more tolerant of extended discussion. At one point, in a scene that even the movie seems to find hilarious, the overly aggressive prosecutor starts mining Sandra's own books for evidence, briefly turning a criminal trial into a literary debate. Still, Sandra's career is hardly incidental to the case. Samuel was also a writer, but a much less accomplished one than Sandra, which may have made him jealous. Could Samuel have killed himself in despair? That's the possibility put forth to the court by Sandra's attorney, 
well played by Swan Arlo, who doesn't seem entirely convinced of his client's innocence. Danielle, piercingly played by Milo Machado Granet, also doesn't know what to believe, as he's torn apart by the loss of his dad and possibly the loss of his mom. The movie's emotional centerpiece is a stunningly written and acted flashback to a furious marital argument that took place shortly before Samuel's death. One of those knock-down, drag-out fights where every source of tension and resentment gets dragged to the surface. They clash over their finances, their differing approaches to parenting, their unsatisfying sex life, and Sandra's past infidelity. Sandra expresses her frustration at the many sacrifices she's quietly made, including agreeing to live in France. Anatomy of a Fall persuasively suggests that every marriage is ultimately something of a mystery. The fact that Samuel is no longer alive to defend himself makes it even harder to determine who here is telling the truth. Even so, I couldn't help but gravitate towards Sandra's side. There's something refreshing about the cool pragmatism she shows in the face of Samuel's insecurity. The way she refuses to shortchange her career or coddle her husband for his failures. I left admiring Sandra's steely resolve, while still wondering if that resolve might have led her to do the unthinkable. Justin Chang is the film critic for the LA Times. He reviewed the new film, Anatomy of a Fall. On Monday's show, Lawrence Wright, best known for best-selling books about Al-Qaeda and Scientology. His new novel takes on the colorful world of Texas politics, It's about a naive rancher who lucks into a seat in the state legislature where he meets lobbyists, influence peddlers, conspiracy mongers, and power brokers. The book is Mr. Texas. I hope you can join us. To keep up with what's on the show and to get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Roberta Shorrock. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support from Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hersveld, and Charlie Kyer. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallet, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krinzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. I'm Tanya Mosley. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR.